Dear Lord God, we are grateful for the company we have in your Son. We are grateful for the body that we are joined with, both the immediate ones that we can uh, take part in each other's lives and also those who are gathered together in other communities. We'd ask that you would do good to your church and help us declare your glory. In your son's name we pray, amen. I've been thinking about repentance. Um, we're done with Philippians, by the way. We got through Philippians last week. Um, and the problem with repentance, it's not that there's just not enough preachers out there preaching turn or burn, repent or perish, you know, that sort of uh, uh, lean into you on sins. So we're not trying to get uh, the repentance. You have all sorts of emotional means of reaching people sometimes. You sing a real moving song. All of you who are raised in more Baptist circles know just as I am. They, I'm not saying conversions can't be real that way, but I want you to think about repentance and the struggle either you or someone you are a benefit to, someone you are counseling, may struggle with. Repentance is, a, is central to the faith. I have the passage here at the top, Luke uh, 24. This is the last bit in the Gospel of St. Luke. Then, then he opened their minds. This is Christ. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are his witnesses to, of these things. Now, he's telling them, and this is the Lucan version of the Great Commission, <clears throat> A little less, uh, you might say, a little less quotable than going to all nations, baptizing them, etc., etc. Um, but here you got some basic things. We're preaching forgiveness and repentance, or repentance and forgiveness. To all nations, Christ telling his, Jewish Christ telling his Jewish disciples, you're going to go to the Gentiles. That was what uh, Kenny was reading out of Romans today about this was intended of God. Well, it's the, it, in Ephesians it says this is the mystery of God hidden for ages, that Christ would be preached. Forgiveness of sins would be available to the Gentiles. Thank God because most of us are Gentiles here. But I wanted to, you notice that the word repentance, it didn't come out of the, the program that way. I made it bold. Because I wanted us to be thinking about what it means to repent. Basically, the concept is to, is to turn around or change your mind. It might be helpful. We, we sometimes go, we have such light versions of repentance. You know, you, you push your brother down a short flight of stairs, and your mother catches you. You tell Johnny you're sorry. I'm sorry. We have levels of repentance that... Um, and, of course, then the sea lawyering repentance when your child is aware that, oh, no, father's coming home and going to give me a spanking. Then, then the water works. And, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Anything to avoid, avoid the punishment. 
Because we always tie repentance. You know, forgiveness is supposed to come oh, dear Father, on the results of repentance. I'm crying a lot, see? Isn't that what you want me to do? We don't always understand what we mean, really, why our repentance isn't clicking. Because it's, stuff is riding on this. It's repent and be baptized. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. What, when it says repent of your sins, is it just that you did some bad things and God wants you to say you're sorry? It's kind of crucial. We're dealing with a religion here. Uh, uh, we're not dealing with a social club that is rooted in an ethical principle. We're dealing with a religion, which means there is a God not just a set of opinions that we might have about stories. There is a God which those who are in the religion actually believe in and, and actually serve. And we know that the forgiveness of sins comes from that agent. That agent is the one we offended. That is the agent that forgives. That is the agent who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, right? On the third day, rise from the dead. That, and that repentance and forgiveness from sins will be preached in his name. It's a very, very actual historical thing that we're, we like that forgiveness. We, we like the ethics of the Christ. But repentance becomes the problem. Jesus Christ has no trouble forgiving you. He is wonderfully gracious. Where sin abounds, does grace abound all the more, it says. We've got a problem on the repentance end. Now, I, uh, a few years ago, I came up with this law of lords. Right? Occasionally, it ends up in a sermon. I thought it should end up here. The law of lords is this. A lord is lifted up to make that peace which those that are below must kneel to enjoy. Okay? It's the nature of Lord and the not Lord. Whatever Lord it is, mom, dad, boss, king, God, they are held up to make a peace. They are governing to make a peace. For you to enjoy that peace, you have to kneel. You have to bow. The forgiveness of sins, peace of the believer, the repentance is, you might say, how honest and actual the bowing is. I've mentioned before, I used to be, when I was taking East Asia history back in the 70s, at college, uh, we covered the kowtow, which at least according to my professor, was the nine obeisances and the 12 prostrations. You go in before the emperor of China, you did the nine obeisances and the 12 prostrations. You bowed, smacked your head on the floor, all the way up to the throne. They understood kneeling. We, on the other hand, don't. We have barriers, and our basic barrier right in the way of this necessary thing that we're gathered together religiously 
hopefully on the far side of repentance and forgiveness of sins. But sometimes you struggle in sins that you need to repent of, that you're already a believer. Sometimes you're trying to communicate it, you're wondering, why can't, why are they having such a hard time repenting? Well, because this is the basic question. There's a war going on between you and Yahweh. That's it. That's it. And when war goes on, you know what a war is? War is a charming little pastime that, well, they're doing it in, 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 in Capitol Hill. Is that what it's called? Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. They have declared it not part of the United States, and they have started their own little warlord-like uh, behavior. That's what a, and they better hope it doesn't come to war, because I think they will lose the war. But that's what wars are about. I don't know if you knew this. Um, it's not, you know, it doesn't take UN, the UN to figure this out. You go to war because you want to be in charge of that area that they claim to be in charge of. That's why you go to war. Always. Take their stuff. Take their in-chargeness. And that's what we are at with the living God. We are at war with God. We're not at peace with God because it is challenged Who's in charge here? When you bow the knee, when you repent, you are looking at your sins and your, how you ran your life and pointing at it and says, you know, that was the dumbest set of years I ever lived through. I am really stupid. And I am very sorry for being so stupid. I'm sorry for not doing it your way, O Lord. And the nine obeisances and the 12 prostrations is too little to convey how much of a surrender I am making. That's what repentance is. It surrenders authority. That's why it's hard. Somebody, I was talking to somebody this week, I think it was. I can't remember who. About, about this and, and about how people, um, the cell phone. This is a cell phone. It's not, it's not an Apple product. It's a Samsung like God intended. I am a Christian, by the way. Protestant. This has created something that most boomers notice, okay? And you can say under your breath, okay, boomer, you can, you can just say, Evan's just ranting about the modern. But people have a hard time committing to things because they know at any moment one of their friends with a cooler idea and a cooler offer could call them, text them, message them, and reveal to them that although they committed to Leslie, they were coming over to the big house for dinner, something more fun is happening not at the big house. People don't like to surrender control. And so they've been answering us for a few years now Oh, I think I might be able to do that. What do you mean you think you might be able to do that? I don't think you might be able to. You say, thank you very much, I am coming, or I am not coming. Simple. None of this, probably. We don't want to surrender the event of our life to someone else's. Me, honor, bound by my word to go to this event because I said I was going to go. Honor? You don't seem to understand how much I want to do this thing. How much I want to break my word 
so I don't give my word. Or they give their word and break it. There's a war going on between the way you want it and everyone else's will, okay? And in some cases, you don't have to keep their will. Their will is not in charge of you. But you can watch yourself avoiding other people's wills being in charge of us. And then when we get to religion, we're talking about whether God's will gets to be in charge of you. And a lot depends. You know, I think part of our problems, the reason he said big, the next uh, big words on the right-hand side, it says Psalm 29, and the font Frankenstein is the name of the font. font. I always use it for Psalm uh, headings. It looks like a psalm, doesn't it? That's Frankenstein. I like it. Um, 11 short verses. I've stumbled across Psalm 29. It's been, I don't know, 12 years since I was in Psalm 29, but I was reading through the Old Testament about getting ready for this Bible study in July. And I, my, my Bible was open, Psalm 29, and I was just reading it because it was there it was. Well, that's really interesting. That's, a, that's got some great statements in it. So I put my Bible marker in there and came back to it this morning. And what's nice about Psalm 29 is a very direct Psalm of David. Very direct Psalm of David. And it's something that may help us out. I want to use it to uh, leverage us into the Ephesians passage down below. The Ephesians passage is sort of the New Testament anchor of what David is dealing with in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, it's actually giving us instructions about defining for ourselves the other who has claim to your life. Remember, the war that is going on regarding repentance is whether or not you have surrendered. Whether, as C.S. Lewis says, you have laid down your arms. This is, I'm sorry, I was insisting on how I was doing it. I thought I was smart, I wasn't. I was just evil. Part of it is realizing who you are, that whole old Latin thing, I think Juvenal says uh, somewhere. Um, know thyself. You've probably heard it from other writers. Know thyself. Part of your repentance is, um, I realized who I am, and I'm not all that either good, wise, or capable. The other thing is, when it's a religious choice, you might then join a cult. You might then um, d dive into your business so that your boss will decide what your life is. Join the rotary so that someone can, you know, form you, shape you, because you're so poor at it yourself. Some of us found religion. Some of us found Christianity, in which case Yahweh, the God, um, needs to be not just uh, sort of the, the fall guy for your realizations about who you are. He has got to be described 
ascribe to the Lord. He's saying, oh, heavenly beings, this, this word is for the gods. What should I ascribe to the Lord? Now, you also need to know that Evan keeps saying Yahweh, and I nearly did it this morning, but I said, behave, Evan. In the psalm where it has the Lord in all capitals, that is where the name of God, the tetragrammaton, appears in the Hebrew text. The Hebrews did not like translating the name of God because it was ineffable. They didn't ever ascribe vowel points to it. So they always put in a marginal Adonai in the margin so you would say Lord instead of saying the name of God. We're not that weird. David was saying the name of the Lord. Matter of fact, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name is an encounter with his name. It has glory, yes, but it's not the glory of evasion. So that now people think, and I've mentioned this countless times, that God is the name of God. God is the kind. Yahweh is who he is. The Tetragrammaton, the YHWH, is the name of the God that Jesus Christ is the son of, maker of heaven and earth. I am supposed to attend to his presence and identity. This leveraged on glory and strength. Now, How do you ascribe to God? What, what, what is your process of some people, you know, we're not, we don't have a worship team, nor will we, but, you know, worship teams and good, some good churches out there that really love Jesus, and they, they'll sing certain things. The one that sticks with me, because I don't know any of the songs, Heavenly Father, we appreciate you. And I said, what a, what a, do you? Do you appreciate him? I appreciate, you know, J.C. Penney's. I appreciate the price of gas. How you go after your God, glory and strength, seen by the gods. It's telling the gods to assess this. Other gods, not you. You're just scurrying around on the planet about that tall. And um, I, I found out, I looked it up because I wanted to be sure. It is true. In case you were being all full of yourself. If the earth was the size of a billiard ball, it would be smoother than a billiard ball. Not as smooth not with the little bumps that you see on the globe that your dad has in the study, because those are fake. You would not feel a single rise. Your hand would move over the globe perfectly smooth. That is your world. And you're standing next to Everest or Mount, you know, Moscow Mountain going, wow, because you're that big. Well, even that big. We're not, we're nothing. How do we... What are we doing with our thoughts that make it hard for us to repent? We inflate ourselves. There's that old cartoon in the New Yorker of the view of the United States from Manhattan. And Manhattan occupies most of the United States. 
And then there's Jersey City on the other side, and then boom, there's nothing, maybe a cactus, and then San Francisco. Little tiny country, Manhattan is everything. We are very conceited about who we are, what we're doing, what we're about. It is unimportant it's all going to be dust. Remember, I'm 65, and I'm, I'm going to be dead soon. And everything I did, that ceiling I worked on yesterday and I'm suffering for, gone. Somebody, maybe my, one of my children will say, I don't like that ceiling, I'm tearing it out. Our lives are nothing. Your life is but a vapor. What you are doing with it is, if you are insisting that you're doing it, is presumption. He says all such boasting is evil in James. Just do stuff and realize it's really small. But do stuff knowing that you're really small and you are the one who needs to be on his knees before the living God who, to whom glory and strength ought to be attributed. His name itself, the Yahweh, is the I Am. A statement of being. Your being is going to be dead. Worms will eat it. It will start to rot really fast. That's your physical being. You have a soulful being, a will, which is like God's will, God's uh, actual uh, decisional nature. His is a lot bigger. He can call universes into being. What are you doing to find it? What are you doing to see him as yes? Some people start to get serious. Instead of being a heavenly father, I appreciate you, or they're, they're you know, you know, in love with Jesus. Sometimes people go, no, that's not righteous enough or serious enough. So they get all seriously theological about it. Everything becomes definitional. And they think because they define him as really big, he is really big to them. No. You have, if, you, if you were to come back and tell me how deep the Grand Canyon is, looked it up on Wiki, how, I don't know, how deep is it? Pretty deep. And you came and said, you realize the Grand Canyon is X number of feet deep? I said, well, heavens to Betsy, what did, what did you think? When you, what did you feel when you saw it? Well, I haven't been there. Looked it up in Wiki. It's a fact. It's science. And we do that with our God. We turn him into an omni-this, and we don't encounter the omni-that. When we ascribe glory and strength to him, when we ascribe the glory of his name to him, it should be hitting us differently. Why do I say it should be? Well, you also have the artifice of, you have a different, create a different kind of relationship, make it like the relationships we have, so you sing love songs to Jesus. Then you have the theologians who, are, who think that they've defined him accurately so they have seen him accurately. Then there are the people who are into ritual, who try to create a state of worship in a priestcraft way. The voice, verse 3, of the Lord is upon the waters, the glory, the God of glory thunders, the Lord upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf 
and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. There's where you're going. Because if I'm to ascribe glory and strength to my God, to Yahweh, the poet here, David, is saying, you know, when God speaks, the planet, which you think is so magnificent and big, is quaking in its boots. The earthquakes, are, we say, are common in the Lebanon and that portion of the world. The writer of the psalm is going, that is the voice of God. That's what the voice of God is. The thunders. You... Leslie's band was playing the other night, and he saw this storm cloud coming in uh, over the mall, and lightning was starting. And Ikaias posted a really good picture of the lightning that he caught over there. Um, then it was a matter of race for home. Throw the instruments in the truck, and one of the, the drummer got on the trailer and is holding towels over the keyboards. You know, places just going sideways. Great. And then I got home and sat on the front porch. We still, we're not, it's not that this is a primitive understanding. You still have this understanding. I saw picture, pictures on Facebook of various families gathered on, you know, under the awning on their porch watching the great storm, people posting photos of all the clouds. We had to physically restrain Madison because she, she runs out into the rain. We don't, we don't have to be primitives to know this. This image works for you. It's wonderful you say, but I think it's a poetic image. Whatever, did the message of it work for you? Whether or not you think that David thought the voice of God was in an earthquake or in thunder, do you understand perfectly well why he would think that? We're still terrified. Dogs are howling. Little children are crying for their mothers. We know what it means, glory and strength. Now, it says in the last two verses, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. With our pa passage into the gospel of Jesus Christ, where our repentance and forgiveness of sins brought us into that peace, how do we take this in as helping us maintain the Christian walk? How, preaching the Christian life to those who don't know Jesus Christ. Knowing that you're introducing them to a God and what you ascribe to that God. Some people try to ratchet it up into some sort of, well, sinners in the hands of an angry God sort of thing. Some people like the romantics. You all know the painting by Caspar David Friedrich, um, The Wanderer. It's famous. Uh, everybody talks about the Enlightenment. And they always say, I think Paul Johnson had a picture of it on the cover of his book. It's that guy, you're back, he's 
be standing on a precipice, a rocky precipice, and there's fog and mountains in front of him. He's got a walking stick, and you can't see his face, but it's a very, very, very noble, very, very personal picture of the romantic relationship to nature. We get into ways of dealing with it so that we can enjoy the sensation to me of the romantic view of God, the romantic view of nature. Not the romance in the love story romance, but romance in the, in the, uh, the sense of the, the, what's it called? It's a porthos, uh, a, a uh, un, unfulfilled longing, the sensuched. Because that's a thrill for us. If you feel the sublime, you walk into the cathedral, wherever the cathedral, and the vault goes up above your head, you go, oh my goodness. You feel something. And some people go to those places to feel those somethings. It's like going to Disneyland to take a ride. It's something that entertains you. God enthroned is not to entertain you. God enthroned over the flood as king forever, giving blessings to his people is past your enjoyment of the encounter. The danger is the church sometimes tries to create the encounter. I was reading somebody's Facebook post yesterday, and it was describing a good situation, a good encounter in, oh, with Christians, it's so, such obvious, I know what I'm talking about. They're announcing to you the goodness of the circumstance and what it meant and, and how grand it was. Some people aren't good poets. We need to watch out that we don't try to you might say, take our path to righteousness, our path to forgiveness, our repentance, where we realize who the God is and we realize who we are and we're not going through that move and that encounter in some sort of romantic way to entertain our sense of the sublime. The sublime is a great feeling. Poets enjoy it. Misty days on the Palouse, smoking a pipe, wearing tweed. And I wear tweed and smoke a pipe and walk in the fog. I'm picturesque. Just a second. Now you'll believe me. Because I'm an artist. I know what the sublime is. I know how to create it. You could, you know, pe people go to gardens in foreign cities to see something and feel something. Walk into cathedrals to feel something. I have to remind myself when I walk into an Anglican cathedral, this place is apostate. <laughs> this place is, is anti the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. I'd probably think the same thing of a temple to Baal. The Parthenon is beautiful. I don't worship Athena. We have to know how we can be sidetracked by our religion to keep for the centerpiece of our religion from happening. People struggle 
we, we don't know that the very thing we think we're accomplishing, repentance from dead works and forgiveness of sins, they think they've reached it because they cried and prayed a prayer that was based on their entertain, being entertained by the encounter, a religious encounter, not because they were scared spitless. Because the church has replaced the real encounter with repentance and the living God with priestcraft and ritual and, and the like, having temples that affect you. And again, I love those things because I'm an artist. But I love them as an artist. You know you can do that, right? You ladies are attractive. Your husband loves you. He thinks you're attractive. So does everybody else think you're attractive. It has nothing to do with the, the relationship between the two of you. It just happens to be. So St. Paul's in London is a very beautiful building. One of the most beautiful I have ever been in. But it's not my religion. Christmas is a nice holiday where kids get to open presents and Trees are in my living room for some reason. But it has nothing to do with my religion. It's a nice picturesque cultural involvement. Your involvement with Jesus Christ is your ultimate realization of who you are and your ultimate realization of who he is. In Ephesians 3, right here at the bottom, <laughs> of this gospel, St. Paul is writing this, I was made minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. He's addressing this to the same audience that David was addressing it in verse 1 of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. And he's saying, you know, this whole thing with the church, for years this great plan of God was hidden. But we are here to make known to the powers, the heavenly beings the wisdom of God. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we say our Lord, when I say Jesus, it's, I don't know if you know, we have very little organization in this institution called All Souls, but there is a church logo. It's right there at the top of your sermon notes. Um, and there in the middle, in case you don't believe it and you don't want to be sure that you're in the right church, it just says, Jesus Dominus Est. Jesus is Lord. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we believe he being in charge of you, your universe is far more important than you being in charge of your universe. And that we believe that all of us, to one degree, different storylines, we all came to that conclusion. We bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. This is the thing this is the big, whereas David is looking at, you know, look at the, look at the God in heaven thunders. Look at the Lebanon skipping like an ox. 
We had that earthquake a few months ago, all part of the 2020 Entertainment Committee's um, events. I've been through a number of earthquakes, and I enjoy them. But our house is big, and it sways a lot. We understand those things, but we as Christians are touching something that goes way back, the mystery hidden for ages, that this repentance from self and the turning towards God for the forgiveness of sins is is something for all men. God made all men able to get this. Now, instead of, I, again, I still like thunderstorms. I still like cathedrals. I still, I, but I know what those are. I need to know, as a Christian, what I, what I am ascribing to my God what is the voice of God? Remember, he says, it was all the way through that song going, the voice, the voice, the voice, six times, right? This is what the voice of God does. For us as Christians, the voice of God is a little different. And our drawing near to listen, that's that passage, I think I gave you the reference out of Ecclesiastes uh, 5. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you upon earth. Remember the billiard ball? Therefore, let your words be few. We as Christians are encountering something about the voice of God. That Christ, remember Christ, John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He is the spoken message of God. We encounter his message in our submission to his lordship. This is according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees. St. Paul, very important Christian, I don't know if you knew that, very important Christian, bowed his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Our experience under glory, our experience um, bowing our knees is not to a poetic image, not as something that really, really either represents or really is a source of God speaking to man. The riches of God's glory available to us as we bow the knees that we would be strengthened through faith in the inner man. Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. It sounds like you're going through some sort of Enochian ascendancy. You're caught up through this passage. Rather than 
standing on a hilltop in the fog with your pipe, as good as experience that's going to be, it ain't bringing you this. We have the ability in bowing the knee and praying for one another to strengthen ourselves, to dwelling our, in our hearts. What we believe about our God will bring us to the point where we have the power to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. To know something that surpasses knowledge. You're going to be a mystic before you're done with this. But not a mystic who is entertained by their own mysticism. Not a mystic that likes to talk to people and drop hints that they're a mystic. But people who, uh, who have found themselves ascribing to their God what ought to be ascribed to him. Ascribing to themselves mm, a very accurate notion. Someday, this basic question of who's in charge in your life has to be answered, and someday you will give an answer before the other agent who claimed it. There are a lot of people who think they should be in charge of you, but they won't be around either. Just, it'll just be you claiming, I was in charge, oh God, and God said, oh yeah? I thought I was in charge. And you'll see because it'll come to a throwdown, it'll come to a judgment. The petty rewards you serve that you thought would bring you peace. And when I start to see and have the confidence that I have in Christ about the breadth, the height, the depth, the length, verse 20, the end, it's a little beatitude or a benediction. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I wanted to put, because this Ephesians 3 passage and the Psalm 29 passage both address themselves saying this is toward things above you, things above man's pay grade, heavenly beings. What, what God has done, what God wants everyone to know. And they end in the 29, and in his temple all cry glory. To him be glory in the church. This is what God's glory is. It's not the lightning flash. There's that passage, I think I give the reference somewhere in the notes out of Hebrews I refer to it quite a bit. This is sort of for those people who are tempted to create the romantic ideal of the... And given enough money, I would be really, you know, a little moss-covered stone church up on a hill between here and Pullman. You could see it from the highway, maybe just the spire. But you know that if you drove out this little road, the little country road, there would be a graveyard where most of you would be buried. And, and then this, you know, Norman church, a little Norman church with stone. Lichen, lots of lichen. I'm susceptible to that sort of thing. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers entreat no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's what a lot of people want to get. They want to get that kind of romance. That really happened. That really was our God, and that was Sinai, and that was the Jews. And, and, but that relationship has been replaced with a greater aspect of God's glory. The greater aspect of God's glory is his mystery of man's access to him by his mercy, by faith. Then it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. It doesn't step away from the poetic element of it. It just says, this got turned up past seven. That, that excitement of the earthquake and the fire and the mountain and the volcanic eruptions and all the rest, yeah, that's going to convey something to you. But this Christianity has turned it up. You have become, in the church, the glory of God. And now that's why it's important that those who know and ascribe to their God that glory and have bowed the knee appropriately to the relationship of them and him, they will start to live like people who have, what does it say? The breadth and length and height and depth. Loving Christ with surpasses knowledge, be able to do far more abundantly in us. He is what we're able to get out of this is so much more than us just trying to piece together a half-decent Christian life. Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And all cry, glory. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We'd ask that you would Walk with each of us as we ascribe to you the things that are the most important things in our history, personally, and the history of man, corporately, the work of your Son on the cross, the salvation of sinful man from man's self. Lord, we ask that your Son would be glorified, that your church would glorify him, that we would know it was happening, that we weren't pretending to spiritual experiences so that we can feel something entertaining, but that we would be men and women who have fallen on our knees before the living God. Lord, in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.